Should intellectual property be part of a free society? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with David D'Amato. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with David D'Amato. David is an attorney, businessman, and independent researcher. He's a policy advisor to the Future of Freedom Foundation and a regular opinion contributor to The Hill. His writing has appeared in Forbes, Newsweek, Investor's Business Daily, Real Clear Politics, The Washington Examiner, and many other publications, both popular and scholarly. He's also the Benjamin R. Tucker Chair in Anarchist Economic Theory at the Center for a Stateless Society. His work has been cited by the ACLU and Human Rights Watch, among others. David? Welcome to The Curious Task. Thank you very much for having me on. It's a great pleasure to be with you. And it's great to have you on. So, David, we base each episode on a question and go over the answers and conversation takes us. Our question today is, should intellectual property be part of a free society? And I think the best way to answer that is really just to tour the nature of IP and how it works and, you know, discuss it from that perspective. And then we'll put that in conjunction with what we call libertarian thought more broadly, of course. So let's start right at the high level. So what do we mean by intellectual property for the sake of this discussion? Let's start right from concept to, to the specific applications in your own mind and the way you think of it. Sure. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. So uh, at a high level, I think when we're talking about intellectual property, I think we really are talking about uh, a, a, modern, a modern invention. I, there, there are precursors to modern intellectual property rights as far back as um, – you know, I think you can see some precursors even in, even as far back as antiquity. But really, we're talking about uh, in this context something that emerges really in the modern age. Uh, you you do see some of the first um, patent protections in the modern sense coming out of uh, coming out of Venice in the in, in around the 1400s. So you're seeing you know the dawn of, the dawn of modernity there and the import the increasing importance of um, of technology and uh, and inventions in the in the sort of the mechanical engineering realm are are already starting to become more important. So when we're talking about intellectual property rights, we, te- we tend to be talking about patents, uh, copyrights, um, trademarks, um, trade secrets. I think you know in the in the current context, really. Uh, Patents and copyrights and trademarks tend to be some of the most important. And so patents, as most of your listeners will know, uh, protect protect inventions, right? Um, or that's the, you know, that's the stated, and we'll, we'll, we'll get into this, but yes, that's absolutely. the stated purpose of, um, of patents is to protect inventions and thereby to uh, encourage competition protect people's rights to what they've invented um, and, and it, protect innovation and competition in that way. And then uh, copyrights, you can have um, copyrights to literary works and, uh, and artistic works. And, um, and again, those are, those are to protect people's, uh, you know, people's intellectual creations, I guess, people, the products of people's uh, genius um, that are unique. Uh, we, we, the, the idea is that we would we, we should want to protect those. And then I guess just to round that off with trademarks as well, then. 
what's going on yeah, there? Yeah, tra- trademarks. Um, you know, you you have fo- folks will have trademarks to their their branding and their sometimes their sort of design, their color schemes and things like that to protect. Um, you know, the the sort of the uh, the br- the picture of the brand in the marketplace, so that um, recognizable features, identifiable recognizable features of um, of a of a company's brand are protected from you, you know i can't go out and just pretend to have a mcdonald's and um set that up with a mcdonald's logo and uh that would be that would be you know a violation or an infringement so that's that's uh another big area in the current in the current sort of economic system that that's a hugely important obviously Mm-hmm. And, and whether the application is through uh, copyrights, patents, or trademarks, can can you talk a little bit more about what's sort of under the um, intellectual and conceptual hood, if you will, of of what's really going on with intellectual property? Because we're not yep. just saying, you know, I, I, if we go back, I, and I haven't certainly read everything on this topic myself, but I'm pretty sure that if we go back and look at the scholarship on this, people aren't saying it's really mean to claim something else as an idea or something like that. This is typically rooted in the idea of actual property rights in intellectual right. things that's happening in, in people's brains, essentially. So could you talk a bit about how that kind of property right discussion ends up merging up with what is effectively just the intellectual discussion on the intellectual right. side of the IP. Uh, yeah, I'm glad you raised that because I do think it gets to, I think it gets to what are the important philosophical points to me. And, um, and also I think it gets to what we can do with, uh, so yeah, this deployment, I, I think the deployment of the term property itself is potentially problematic and misleading here. And, uh, and I think that's part of the, that comes to some of the debates we have within the libertarian movement about whether this is a legitimate protection of, you know, real rights, or if it's some kind of government created privilege or monopoly or something like that. So, yeah, I mean, so getting to how we think about property as people, as, as libertarians, as people who want people's rights and freedoms to be um, protected in some abstract, uh, you know, moral um, or ethical normative sense. Mm-hmm. I think, um, you know, we have this attempt within the intellectual property framework to create an analogy or a continuity between the space of real physical reality where we have, you know, real property, land, and then chattel property, like, you know, your car or some other type of movable property. Um, And these things are thought to be, you know, we think generally, I think most of us generally think at some level, these things need to be protected because uh, they're rivalrous in some way. And uh, and to sort of unpack that a little bit, um, we can't both kind of live in your house or drive your car, uh, at the, at the same time. I mean, I suppose we could both be in the house at the, at the same time. We could both be in the car at the same time, but we think that only one of us should really own it in case there's some kind of dispute about what to do, uh, what to do with that, with that piece of property or that land or whatever. Um, we have, we sort of are in the in the intellectual sense. I think we're justifying a limited monopoly because we think that um, if we don't do that, it's somehow unethical or unjust or unfair in some way for other latecomers to, uh, if we've you know homesteaded a piece of land or if we've created a 
a particular thing or or bought it fair and square through free exchange, we think that 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 should be ours and should be protected from people who just might want to take it arbitrarily. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, by extension, a lot of uh, I think a lot of the defenders of intellectual property rights have tended to say, well, ideas are enough like that that we should try to sort of cordon off certain ideas for people who um have come to have come to own them and you know i think there's a limit to the question of how we come to own things to me is really important in intellectual property because and it's it's important in physical property too i think this is where we do start to see um the analogy break down a little bit uh because you know Traditionally, we think if you, again, kind of going back to that homesteading or labor mixing thing, this is not how most of us come by our property today. We don't usually kind of like go out and and homestead it, but we do think that maybe property is justified if an individual has mixed mixed her labor with, with, you know, that that the traditional Lockean idea Mm -hmm. of owning something because you've mixed your labor with it and now you have some kind of right that should be that should be um, entitled to protection. And with uh, with intellectual property rights, I don't think it's really possible to, to do that. Um, we don't have a physical thing that's actually rivalrous that re- requires protection in the same way. We could easily, you know, we can easily see that ideas are infinitely multipliable uh, and reproducible without any of us losing anything uh, you know any access to that idea or to that um to that information uh so we don't we don't have the same you know limits on on the, uh, as we do in the physical world where we might where we might want to actually allow people to put up a fence and cordon things off um so i think that you know at a high level that's where that's where i think the point of departure is and and in a lot of the a lot of the uh, literature on both across sort of across disciplines in the legal world, and then in economics too, uh, a lot of the literature on intellectual property does tend to try to treat that that analogy to the physical world, and um, and apply you know apply critical scrutiny to it, and and that's what I think I'm interested in is just you know putting this idea of intellectual property into a you know, into a critical conversation with some of our philosophical principles as libertarians so that we can see whether it really does fit in with um, with those principles. Mm-hmm. And just to, to tie that sort of off so people can vi- picture this in their head, I guess, as well, and just to put a finer point on it, like, I guess the idea isn't that, and of course, you might be able to get into, you know, how, for ex- example, patents it might be a little silly, some patents that are found stuff, but but generally speaking, the idea behind something like a patent or IP is that you should be able to, to quantify this idea to some degree and then protect it, right? Like, I mean, people shouldn't necessarily, um, the idea wasn't that people could necessarily run off to patent off and said, I have a really good idea, um, can't define it right now, but if anything, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Like, the idea is that you need to be able to actually have this idea as a unit, if you will, that you're then protecting. Yeah, that, that's right. I mean, but I think, uh, you know, to that point, I think maybe listeners might be surprised to learn what that means. Um, so like when you, you know, when you go to patent an invention, what we, you know, what you don't have to do to reduce that invention to practice is actually, you know, build a prototype. Um, you don't actually have to do that. You can, 
you, you know, you can work with, um, scientists and engineers and, um, and, you know, patent legal, legal professionals to develop and, uh, advance a prosecute a patent without really having ever, um, shown that it, you know, that you're, that you're going to use it, that you plan to use it, anything, anything like that. Um, it's much, the, the, it's much more, uh, it's much more technical in, in a lot of senses than, than people think, but it's also very often patents are not reduced to use and not actually being used in the real world. And they're, uh, they're advanced specifically to, preempt other people from getting into that space so you may you have you may have no plans at all to ever use this um invention and it may be very much to to a layperson or to the naked eye it may be very very much like things that already exist that aren't protected by patents or that are so there is a level of arbitrariness to it that i think um you know is part of the is part of the critique because um Ultimately, I think what what we're seeing in the relationship between, you know, intellectual property rights and uh, social and economic life is it has become sort of gamified, I think, by Mm -hmm. um, by some of the major by some of the major actors who have the resources to engage in this game. And it's a very uh, it's a rich man sport. It's, uh, you know, it's intellectual property is kind of, you know, the um, it's it's very much a game that can be captured, I guess. And in some of, in some of those libertarian arguments, I think apply well to this arena too, where we do kind of see it. uh, Some of us see it as, um, as kind of a form of legal capture intellect uh, or regulatory capture where um, well-positioned and well-funded, you know, special interests are, whether they're in, the government sector, the nonprofit sector with education or the corp, you know, the corporate economy um, have been really good at um, making sure that we see these as property. And I think that use of the term property is is really, um, again, sort of misleading in a, in a key one of the key ways that uh, that IPR has become so central to the economic system that we actually do have today. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And just diving a little bit more into patents, because I have a couple specific copyright questions actually in a second. But mm-hmm. but in patents itself, like I think you brought the point, you know, you kind of covered what it was theoretically supposed to be and where we've gone and where we are now, if you will. And I want to go a little further into that specifically on patents, because, it's, you yep. know, a, a lot of companies simply it seems like they they trade on patents now or they'll just there's like industries of, of, of patents on top of patents and onto patents between corporations now I think is a huge issue right uh, because like you yeah. know I think a lot of people that are familiar with this field sometimes approach in their head like you know they'll maybe have that sort of 1940s pamphlet propaganda type style it, it picture in their head where an entrepreneur invents something goes and patents it and he can protect he or she can protect himself but in reality this, this is I don't think we should understate like this is actually for better or worse, and we'll get into that later, this is actually a huge industry unto itself now. Huge. This is not just it, like it, an asset that a company has. This is huge. No, I'm glad that, yeah, I'm glad that you're making that point because I think part of the critique is um, that, you know, I think, I, I think I'd want to put it this way. You, you could be, you don't have to be an intellectual property Certainly, you don't have to be an intellectual property abolitionist like like I am um, to 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 have a critique. Like, yeah, certainly there are lots of folks in 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 
the libertarian community and across kind of the across the policy community who think something is definitely going wrong with this system. And so even if we don't want to completely get rid of it, we need to reform it in some way to get it back to doing what we think it should do in terms of fostering competition and protecting people's um, inventions. But yeah, I think now we have a system where your large companies, um, they have thousands of patents and they have sort of strategically patented areas that maybe they think aren't in use now, but will be soon, or their competitors want to get there, or there are spaces in the future that they want to be in. And so we just have this kind of, um, I, I do see it as a, you know, I, I've written about it as an enclosure and some of our, you know, some, some folks listening will be familiar with, again, in the transition to the modern period, I think, um, in order to make people, uh, in my, in my own view, in order to make people more apt to accept conditions for work and accept, uh, you know, bargaining, bargaining conditions and bargaining strategies that they would not, um, there was, a a, a very concerted effort to enclose what had been common lands in the modern period. And I think now that we're moving into a historical age where more of the capital base, as it were, is bound up in uh, immaterial things and ideas and right. code, uh, you know, uh, in, in code and ideas and inventions, um, we do see that intellectual property has become much more important over the past couple decades and you see it as a central feature of um international trade agreements uh and and in in domestic legislation too it's it's uh very important so yeah i think it's important to for people to know how big of a deal it is uh because if we are getting it wrong then um we might be mistaking the current economy for something more closely approximating the libertarian ideal of just a system of protecting individuals and their rights of protecting their exchanges with other people, which, you know, most of those things are very, you know, obviously I'm talking to, uh, to you, but I think to most people, those are pretty unobjectionable at that, at that abstract general place. So we have to figure out if we're, um, I think it's, you know, we have to figure out if our legal institutions and, um, and specific rules like intellectual property are in line with those ideals or some kind of deviation that we may want to root out. Mm -hmm. I think that train of thought we were just on that hit on many great points to explore was, was sort of ultimately under the umbrella of we talked, we started going down patents very specifically, talk about what they originally intended for and then sort of what might be some problems now. Could you do the same thing with copyright, even if it's just at the high level, again, back up to the top of like, okay, what, what's this stuff really intended for and how is it developed in a way that you see as a problem and, and where we're at today sort of thing? Sure. Sure. So copyright. Yeah. Copyright's interesting in that, um, you know, if I, if if I write an article or a book, um, I don't have to go. Unlike patents, I don't have to go register that or anything. I just have that copyright um, right away, right there. As I, you know, as I uh, put that article down on paper, I have that copyright. It belongs to me, sort of innately, in the way that our current um, legal system works. And I think intuitively, most of us probably do think that it would be morally, you know, morally wrong or ethically, uh, you know, ethically wrong in some way to, you know, if you, Alex, wrote a novel uh, and I copied it and claimed it for my own, um, most of us know that that 
uh, is somehow is somehow ethically, you know, illegitimate. So copyrights tend uh, try to protect people's um, protect people's works in that in that way, so that we don't have people running around pirating. I think, you know, what they end up protecting in practice is actually people's uh, you know rights to use things that they already own. How how they want to. Um, I think, you know, you could, you could quickly, in my example, you could quickly get into sort of the, the laws that we have against fraud too. And I don't, I don't know, that's kind of a, we could go on, we could go off on a long tangent there too, but to keep it to, to keep it to copyright, I think today when you have, uh, you know, ideas as such a central part of the economy, I, I think we have to be very careful when we say, that you know this this text or this idea is owned and can only be reproduced by these people who um who own this this copyright and we have other conventions sort of socially to again we have laws against fraud and we want to continue we want those we have sort of academic um academic cultural institutions like the you know the prescription against uh uh, plagiarism that we right. wouldn't want to, uh, we wouldn't want to abandon those, but specifically with sort of putting, um, putting ideas in the marketplace or, or cordoning them off so that you can extract kind of a rent out of, out of them. Um, I think we have to be really careful with that. Oh, you know, just generally, and this, this goes back into patents too. It's just the idea that somebody has been the first to think about something or somebody is the first to invent something. Um, it just almost never happens in reality that the person owning a copyright or, uh, I mean, specifically, uh, you know, with patents, it's the inventor, uh, the inventor is almost never, um, the, the owner of that, that patent in, in reality. So mm -hmm. it, that's another, another place where I think the idea that we have in our head, especially in the popular imagination, people who haven't kind of like dug into, this stuff or practiced in this area uh the the idea that we have of of ip of ip rights is really not um matching up with the the way that it's it's started to work particularly in the past few decades mm -hmm. and, and on that point actually because you did mention before that there's a that huge digression we can get into about fraud and stuff like that regarding copyright and you're right we don't have like the three or four hours it would be great to take to go through all that but i think we should at least touch it at a high level because i think that a lot of the people that are pro copyright sort of benefit from the conflation of of fraud and just the, the right to copy in that one discussion so i do want to make the distinction there that um for instance if i take i don't know a book uh, that someone wrote last year and i buy a you know a copy from the bookstore where let's just use hard copies and example to keep it simple and i take yeah. that book and i copy and sell it and still give credit to the author like i'm not claiming it as my own that's still a violation right. of copyright in many ways under some regimes and Abs whereas absolutely. there are fraud laws and sort of regimes that take care of me plagiarizing or claiming something as my own misrepresenting separately right. so I, I think that first part's very key though because making copies of information and sort of distributing more freely and uh not having the feds come after you for example like you know that that'd be a copyright list sort of regime but that but in reality that that's that's really the key right it's that i don't have the right to copy something regardless of who's being credited right. Yeah, no, it's a cru it's a crucial distinction and and it hits on like, you know, kind of going back to this idea in economics of like rival rivalrousness, I guess. Um 
there's a, and maybe we can link to it or something, but there's a great kind of, um, and I forget, I apologize. I forget the, uh, the cartoonist and the author, but there's a great kind of comic strip and a little, a little video too, um, about this idea that copying isn't the same as theft for that same reason that, um, you know, if I steal your bike or I steal your car, it's gone to you now and you don't have access to it. And I took it from you. Whereas if I copy a famous painting, you know, reproduce a famous painting, reproduce a famous novel, um, it's not, uh, it hasn't been reduced for anybody, for any of the user, you know, and and, uh, anybody who has access to it, it, it's still, it's still exactly the same. So I think that's where, you know, the point of one of the points of departure for this this analogy between physical property and IP is just that the most important thing about the you know uh, the salient feature of physical reality that makes private property something that we should um, that we should take seriously is just not present with with ideas. Uh, they're you know they're infinitely reproducible without anybody being less off and. I, I would actually say we should probably try our very hardest to make ideas uh, as free and open as a, and available as possible if we are concerned about these things, about having an innovative economy and, um, you know, sort of being able to think our way, hopefully, out of some of the problems that we that we do have in the world, whether they're um, about like our social technologies and making sure people have the things that they need while also making sure that everybody is free, uh, you know, has sufficient sort of degrees of autonomy and freedom within the social and economic system to build and sell and do the things that they want to do. Um, I think, you know, that that's where we really want to, again, stress test this idea that ideas are property or can be property. Uh, because I do think that the, the, the physical realm is the is the sort of the reason why in the first place that we would that we would want to have um, property. Mm-hmm. And uh, before we take a quick break here, because we're, we're heading towards that time ish, and I, I want to put a stop at a point that makes sense. But before we cap off this section of the conversation, I, I just want to ask you, like all the things we talk like we do have robust intellectual property regimes right now. Um, and, and the way they are. And again, as you said, I think it's very important to you know, distinguish regardless if someone agrees with it or not, IP at its base principle level versus what we have today. Right, um, and, that's huge. And I, do you think that the system we have today ultimately depends on sort of like a state capitalist commercial framework? Because there are some that might argue just offhand that, well, you'd, you know, you'd still end up with the kind of things we have today with IP on principle. It'd always be this sort of way. But I mean, historically, it would seem that when you trace the timeline, a lot of the way things have turned out with IP is specific, specifically because of like sort of the way the, the corporate commercial arrangements are and the basically the system we're living under is also part of the way ip developed is what i'm saying it's not like ip is yeah. a standalone thing over here that's existing in parallel with our system no no this is this is hugely important too and i think you know this this will probably give folks um and and you know some some folks listening probably know the way i think about this anyway but i do definitely think that um ip uh, you know intellectual property as a legal institution um does definitely fit in to it is practically inextricable in my opinion from and this is why i I went out of my way earlier to talk about sort of when we're moving into modernity and we start to have 
sort of the precur the precursors to global capitalism. And, you know, obviously, Ven- it's interesting to me that Venice is sort of the site of, um, you know, 15th century Venice is kind of the site of some of the uh, the modern precursors to the to the to- the the the, the strong intellectual property rights that we have today, because it is very much, in my opinion, bound up with um, bound up with global capitalism, uh, and in my opinion, that is very a very distinct historical thing from the abstract, uh, you know, the abstract philosophical and ethical principles that we have as libertarians, where. In you know, in total good faith, mo- most of us want uh, a world where people are are free and think that people should have rights that government can't you know stomp all over. Um, in in the context of IP, I think very early as you start to move into a sort of proto capitalist or mercantilist era of global trade or limited global trade at that point, certainly compared to where we are now with like very very you know very interconnected world, um, uh, globe spanning, um, commercial institutions that are very large. Uh, we, when we, as soon as we start to see that we see those institutions trying to cordon off and monopolize ideas. I just ideas like actual inventions that the scientific, you know, the scientific revolution is beginning to produce and they're, uh, making this, you know, play for, to the notion that these are actually physical, you know, these should be analogized to physical property. We should be able to own these and state actors and, and corporate, you know, proto corporate, I guess, uh, actors were, you know, very good at, um, at putting fences around those and, and making sure that if people did want to use them, that they would have to pay economic, pay, not economic, pay, pay political rents. Um, Mm -hmm. I guess that's part of the point is, you know, pay rents to them as sort of gatekeepers, whether they really should have had those rights or not, whether they were the inventor, whether they were the first author, um, that always seems to be kind of, and again, I think this is something that probably like, you know, lay people may, may just not understand the, the, the relationship between, you know, how, how this typically works is that the the inventor is going to work for a university or a corporation or, um, you know, some, some body and they're, um, you know, they're, they're going to take that, that ownership when, um, and in, in some ways people could think that that's fair. Like if that person is an, an employee there and they're using the company's resources or the university's resources, um, but I think then we can also get into kind of how much of a role we as taxpayers have in that process, too, because one of the big um, I think sort of one of the big myths about intellectual property is you wouldn't get investment in these key areas if you didn't protect these rights. Um, I think to a certain extent, you know, the idea that we wouldn't have people uh, that we wouldn't always have people trying to cure cancer or, um, shoot a rocket to Mars. Uh, that's, that's tied up in the nature of what, what a human being is. People are going to do that mm-hmm. now, whether, you know, whether you need IP to, to do that, I think is also an interesting question because public money ends up, ends up a huge part of a lot of these most important and pivotal, you know, 
innovations that we think we would want to protect. So it turns out to be that, you know, those the big ones in pharma and, you know, other high tech spaces uh, really are some of the getting some of the most public funding. And we as the public are then kind of paying additionally in monopoly rents, in my in my view, for for access to those things. So um there are there are to me a lot of big myths about the way uh, the IP system works, but I'm glad you made the point about sort of it's it, it's really not a standalone thing. It's a very contingent historical, accidental historical can you know development that we are taking for granted now, but it's brand new and probably really pretty harmful in my in my in my view. Mm-hmm. And I think that's actually an excellent place to take a break. So we're going to do that right now. So everyone, you're listening to The Curious Task. I'm speaking with David D'Amato today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. As always, a huge thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Alessandro Fiorello, Scott Scheel, and Ben Hobbs. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, at The Curious Task, rate us on Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task, and check out the Institute for Liberal Studies. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with David D'Amato today. So, David, I think the first half was great. We really covered a lot of ground, and it is hard to do in one hour discuss intellectual property. But I still think we got to discussing IP, the concept of how like property and what we you know claims in property, how that is is behind the IP discussion more largely. We talked about copyrights, patents, trademarks, what they were intended to do, where they're at now. Lots of good stuff. I think with some of the time remaining, I want to kick off into more of like a bit of like a survey of different libertarian pillars of thought, if you will, on this. I think that'd be quite interesting to our listeners just to ground it a little more in some of the camps and and some of the thinking around that. So you did write an article about this I thought was great for uh, uh, libertarianism.org. That's where it's it's seated right now, at least. And I think um, I think uh, I encourage our listeners to check out the episode notes and uh, and check all that out and read the article themselves. But we can s- sort of skim it, if you will, verbally together. You covered yeah. uh, different libertarian thinkers, specifically Murray Rothbard, Benjamin Tucker, Lysander Spooner, and Ayn Rand in this article. And I'd like to discuss at a high level what was going on there. Um, so let's talk about it. Like Murray Rothbard needs no introduction to many people yeah. listening to this, uh, for better or worse, as I always say again. But long story short, Mr. Rothbard, where did he fall on the IP argument as an influential libertarian? Well, I think Rothbard is actually really interesting uh, and a good place to start here because I, you know, as we know, as we both know, and most of the listeners will know, there are kind of many, um, many Rothbards throughout throughout the decades where he was most active. But the if I if I recall correctly, the position that I wanted to highlight in that piece was. Rothbard's interesting idea that you could you could justify um, copyrights on libertarian grounds, and I think even patents too um, on libertarian grounds, if you set it up in a way where um, there was some kind of pre-existing contractual relationship. So, like for instance, um, I put you know I sort of put this book that I've written to market, but when I sell it, the contract with the buyer is uh that you know she won't 
she won't go and, you know, reproduce it, um, without, without permission. And so Rothbard thinks if you can make that contract, then you, then in principle, you can have something that at least looks like, uh, a copyright style, you know, legal protection. And I, you know, I think that one's interesting because I, it does show some of the nuances here. And again, we talked, we talked before about how this is not, you know, these questions are not going to be isolated from other related ones like this, like what you, what two people are, are capable of doing with a contract, uh, or what, you know, what we might consider fraud or something, you know, those other questions seep into the analysis. So that's why I wanted to highlight this one. And I certainly think that, um, you know, there doesn't seem to be anything wrong with that in principle. It's just then obviously you have something out floating out there in in reality and there are latecomers who then kind of aren't a party to that original agreement. And can you bind them? And then you get into some like very interesting contract law questions too, that I think any, any, um, you know, free society would probably, uh, have to try to work out. But, uh, but I, but that's, that what is, is what I thought was interesting about the Rothbard position. Um, just this idea that you could, you know, similarly with patents, you could, okay, if I'm going to fund this research activity, if I'm going to, um, invest in it, then, um, you know, when, when this, when this information is transferred, it has to sort of the person on the receiving end can't then go and disseminate it without permission. And, so, you know, that may be a way to get to something like um, intellectual property rights, but I just think it breaks down pretty quickly, you know, in the world um, that we have where information is sort of so accessible through the Internet, so freely available and so hard to contain. I just think that, um, you know, we'd have to be realistic about what you could do with a with a regime like that. And this this is Rothbard writing before um, this. This is Rothbard writing before the uh, advent of the. Um, consumer internet mm -hmm. you know the internet as we know it and experience it today mm -hmm. next up would be benjamin tucker just as another way to explore libertarian thought on this um there's less people i would say that are probably familiar with that name right off the bat sometimes than rothbard himself so could you quickly just actually say a word on benjamin who benjamin tucker was and then we'll get into some of his thoughts on intellectual property in general as a contrast sure yeah yeah no benjamin benjamin tucker i think is um uh yeah i'm glad to have an opportunity to talk about Benjamin Tucker, because I think that, um, he represents to me, one of the most interesting and productive strains of, of libertarianism. So Benjamin Tucker is a 19th century, uh, publisher and, um, journalist and sort of polemicist, uh, who, in um, starting in 1881, I believe, and for about 30 years after that, he runs a periodical, publishes it and edits it called Called Liberty. And um, it features kind of a host of uh, people working in, you know, anti-authoritarian, uh, libertarian, socialist. And, you know, this is interesting for listeners of, of this podcast, probably the, I think the reason why Benjamin Tucker probably should be considered more carefully is there's this, uh, there's this really interesting point of convergence when he's writing at that point in the late 19th century between kind of different, different radical categories of people, whether they're, you know, uh, 
early feminists working for women's rights and, uh, you know, the vote for women, um, people kind of from the abolition, you know, left over from the abolitionist movement who are still making sort of uh, civil rights and, and you know, ra- racial issues their focal point, and then the socialist movement. And that's where I think it's interesting for today's libertarians, because um, there was a real connection and overlap between libertarians and, you know, and free, you know, totally for free trade and free markets, but also for, um, you know, reform uh, in the, in the area of labor, you know, the, the length of the workday and working conditions and things like that. So, um, but Benjamin Tucker had a really interesting perspective on intellectual property and kind of opened me personally to some of this way of thinking. I think he was one of the first libertarians that I encountered who, who had, uh, who had this picture of patents and, um, intellectual property more generally as, uh, state created privilege and a monopoly rather than a legitimate protection for, Mm -hmm. um, for a real right. So he, he's kind of talking about patents in the sense of, you know, people, trying to own ideas. And so the, the, this is another kind of, this gets us into another one of the key questions in patent uh, in patent law generally is just what kinds of knowledge do we consider to be laws of nature or facts of nature or just, you know, scientific, a scientific picture of reality or something that is not susceptible to these types of protections. So, um, so the courts definitely do try to uh, they try to say in principle that um, laws of nature, facts of nature are not patentable as inventions. But as we all kind of can see pretty quickly, intuitively, it's not necessarily easy to distinguish between um, a fact of nature and uh, and an invention. And it's it's because coming increasingly difficult because, you know, you've had companies try to patent gene sequences and, um, and things like that. So we're obviously getting into some kind of scary, dangerous territory where we could potentially, I mean, we do, we do have, um, patents for, for plants and, uh, Mm -hmm. and already, you know, there are critics of of that practice uh, and I'm one of them. Um, so you, you can see that it's, it's an area that's potentially fraught and that that question of what kinds of things are just scientific facts. Uh, I think I would submit that that, that area should probably be much bigger and, um, the area for, you know, legitimate inventions, um, not, you know, that are novel and innovative and, and, um, non-obvious, I guess, uh, is probably quite small. Mm -hmm. Um, we have a lot of people, so a lot of things are obvious. Yeah, and and I think another cool thing about Tucker's thought on this is that it was part of his larger sort of web and his thinking about like how, to use a Smithian term, the masters of mankind, if you will, on both the commercial and the political side, largely keep their control in a society. It wasn't just he was all upset about patents. He was also talking about the land monopoly, the money monopoly, right. and he put that right up there, intellectual property, with, uh, with, 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 the, with that same sort of idea of what essentially he viewed, I guess, as, as like sort of that that sort of, um, you know, I'm not sure if he would use the term, but the sort of state capitalism and then the rigging for certain classes of people. Yeah, I think that's exactly, I think that's that's right. And I think that's why Tucker, to me, is so, is so interesting. It is, 
you know, the, the libertarianism of his time, I think was if the, put it this way, if the principles, if the stated principles were the same, the posture toward, uh, observe reality was different and more critical. And that's what I like about this generation, uh, associated with, and, and, you know, in previous, previous ones too, I think they were, their libertarianism was very much oriented to critiques of the existing social and economic, um, status quo. So they're looking at, they're looking at, you know, the emerging or, or kind of growing global capitalism and industrial capitalism at that point, um, at the, you know, at the, at the end of the 19th century as a, again, not as an, to your point, not as an isolated economic system, but as a social and economic system where it's very tough to disentangle the political and the economic. And, uh, it's very tough to disentangle, um, you know, the, the ruling classes in both of those who tended to be, um, as they, you know, as they are now, uh, the, the same people and kind of moving, moving into this sort of world that we inhabit now where, um, you know, you, you have sort of very, uh, well-credentialed and, um, sort of technical specialists in this, in the, in that group of sort of social and economic, um, ruling classes. Whereas, you know, in previous centuries, um, they, they were just differently defined. I mm-hmm. think as we moved into modernity, uh, ability to, ability to turn a profit and ability to gather the, the appropriate credentials became your kind of way into, uh, the ruling class, but there was never a mistake. I think that's the point for them, for people like Tucker, there was never a mistake that even though the character of the ruling class had changed, it wasn't as if it had gone away. And now we lived in the free system that we want. It was still a critical posture toward the way that these people were, you know, and and probably unintentionally, but just according to their interests, um, you know, uh, the, the, there was a, a very strongly emerging state corporate nexus that was that you know there was still the transition i think in the 19th century from some of the older more local ways of doing politics and economics in in slowly getting us to where we are now with a consolidation you know a, a, a system of thinking that defines ruling classes across the country and to some degree now across the world uh, so that's what to me Tucker is interesting for kind of like seeing this emerging and really having what I think is a trenchant and interesting critique. Mm-hmm, for sure. And uh, I'm just going to say for those of, of you of you listening that are interested, I did mention that uh, David in his article in libertarianism.org also covered Lysander Spooner and Ayn Rand. Um, because of our time today, I'm going to move us along so we actually won't stop on them. But I do encourage everyone to read that article and see what other pillars there are there. Because um, I, I think that not to say that everything has been discussed under Rothbard and uh, Tucker, but I think that sort of presents like, you know, some in, two interesting points of view, if you will, in the libertarian movement that are different. Um I want to move on and and as one of my sort of uh, final questions to you, David, um, and actually yeah. talk about something that you've hinted at a couple times as we've covered many things here about how the whole discussion that we've been having um, is further complicated by the fact that we do live in a digital age. Um, you know, of course, and, and you've mentioned this a few times and we've talked about it. I want to get into it further. I mean, the fact is libertarians before 
like Rothbard and Tucker, um, you know, one of the 1800s and one of the 1900s, we're mostly talking about land, commodities, physical inventions, mechanical inventions, ideas about physical inventions or mechanical inventions, for example. Um, and now we seem, no matter what we're doing on the IP area of discussion, to always be sucked into discussing who has ownership or claim to what is essentially uh you know, code or spaces on servers and so on. So I, I just wanted to hear more of your thoughts on that before we do wind down today um, and talk about what you see as either better or worse about everything we've been talking about yeah. when it comes specifically to the digital age and space. Yep. Yeah. No, it's a really good question. I mean, I, I my personal view is that, you know, as we have moved out of, I think, out of the industrial era into some kind of information or technology um era of of capitalism i think uh ip has obviously become even more important and as as we discussed i think we what we're see what we're seeing if we kind of zoom out and try to take a historical um a historical picture of this i think we're looking at in you know early modernity the emergence of IP the way we understand it today with very strong and specific and, you know, specifically articulated um, legal legal protections as we kind of move into industri- industrial uh, in the, the, the industrial age that that becomes more important, even more important now, because what I think we're seeing and, you know, the people will agree and disagree, particularly within the libertarian community. But I think we're seeing that the you know the real economy that produces pe- things that people that people use is um i think probably probably much flatter than people suppose and it has a superstructure built on it now that's services and financialization and high tech and um and you know we see we see periodic booms and busts in those because uh i think there's an inherent instability there but the point you know the reason this touches ip is as our economy does, as the capital base of our information age economy becomes more closely bound up with, you know, the ownership of ideas and pr- particular pieces of intellectual property, IP will, uh, you know, IP will become and has become a a new way to, you know, and again, people will disagree about this, but a new way to colonize the global south and extract from it. Uh, and for instance, we see this with all of our products. The people who make these things can't um, go out and put them to market themselves, even though they're really not getting anything from the mm-hmm. rich companies in the global north, except for the right to use, you know, except for that limited license to the I, to the IP. So we have this situation where it's just. Um, it's you know kind of exactly exactly analogous i think to earlier um you know earlier extractive practices where you know the land and the natural resources for growing the you know whatever produce or um the labor for uh building whatever needed to be built now we 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 can still do a lot of the um you know extractive labor practices but we can add to it that now all of the sort of intellectual property, the brand names, um, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, different, different popular brands that consumers like and trust um, are able to, you know, are able to sort of take all of the benefits associated with that and without kind of 
appropriate levels of uh, remuneration for the people who are who are making the thing. So that's that's the way I see the the role of intellectual property today. It's just um, you know, any any invention that's worthwhile, any IP that's worthwhile is uh, increasingly consolidated, and and we do see you know just as we see with um, increasingly consolidated capital and you know industry uh corporate environments and different across industries we see consolidation and concentration there and similarly portfolios of patents have been gathered in 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 copyrights have been gathered into fewer and fewer uh very large um very large corporate uh entities that have you know very close relationships with international bodies and Mm -hmm. you know domestic states i guess you know um so i think uh we've got to be really careful with how we look at it and we don't want to miss if we want to keep intellectual property going forward we don't want to miss um some of the big philosophical questions about where where it is appropriate to draw the line to make you know to make the thing um to make it make sense i guess mhm mhm and and what sort of and on top of that, and I'm blending it here with another thing you've written because you you had an article um, on the uh, Bleeding Heart Libertarians um, blog site about basically the Trans-Pacific Partnership and so on and so forth and how a lot of those types of quote-unquote free trade agreements uh, um, ultimately end up solidifying and strengthening international IP considerations. And I think one important thing to think about there is that um, regardless of how you come down principally on a lot of these discussions, in effect, what a lot of corporations do when they're expanding or using a certain area of the globe for you know production, for example, that's sent back um, to the homeland, if you will, and so on and so forth, is just quite literally uh, using other areas as bases for operations while trying to stifle local entrepreneurship and i think that, right. that that's a huge part right because there's nothing there's nothing like you know using someone's labor in ecuador and working with the government and the uh world trade organization to make sure that they can't start a business or, or something like that right so i think that that's a huge part of intellectual property too because that's that's one of the sort of hammers that they hold over um developing countries as well it, it would seem to me at least no, I think I think that's a good point because what I'd want, you know, what I'd want um listeners to take away is a big part of it is that if you are a person who thinks, you know, inventors and innovation is important, this is a system you should not like because um around the world it's a system that's being used to make sure that there aren't entry points to um to working in certain areas precisely because they've sort of patented all around it and made sure that, um, and made sure that other people can come in, even if, uh, even if they arrived at the same place completely. And, you know, that's, that's another thing is we, again, given the size of the global economy and how many people are out there, the idea that, um, that there aren't millions of people potentially coming to the same invention um, through similar, you know, it's, it's very much if if people who are interested in the history of science, it's like one of these things like, um, who invented calculus or who invented, you know, modern quantum theory. It's very difficult to, you know, we have our favorites as, you know, we have our celebrities that we point back to. Um, but it's very difficult because obviously, you know, even when you're talking about a person like Newton, uh, you know, calculus didn't spring fully formed from, you know, there, there's a base there, uh, there, there are contributions from others that have to precede that, um, regardless of, 
uh, who, you know, who you are and your ability. So uh, we just want to be really careful about protecting, um, protecting innovation by, you know, making sure that no innovation can happen in the world. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's a paradoxical Thing. Right. It is interesting how some of those arguments come full circle. Like, for example, there's a lot of contracts with people working in Silicon Valley, like at Google, for example, that basically, as you said, the corporation automatically gets ownership of someone's ideas if they're working there because the claim is, well, you're using our resources, you're talking right. to other employees we hire, uh, you, you know, maybe even walking in and seeing a billboard one day that we've put up for everybody in the break room. Who knows what factor has contributed to this idea? So it's ours, probably, which is kind of interesting because yeah. that seems to come full circle on the whole point of, so can you even you know, claim ownership to this stuff to begin with. It seems like they're that, using, that they're using is, anti-IP logic in a way, you know what I mean? Right. I think that it, exactly. I, yeah, I think a lot of what we're talking about is the result of collective effort, historical effort in a lot of, in a lot of ways. And it's, you know, this, these are tricky concepts for people because what we'd prefer to do as, you know, as human beings, what we would prefer to do is say, all right, this is, uh, you know, here's, here's an individual right that can be protected and, um, and sort of minimize the harms associated with that and, um, and sort of carry on the pretense that it actually, you know, protects competition and innovation. But, uh, when you, when you're talking about inventions in the technical space in 2023, you are talking about a lot of very smart, uh, highly specialized people, globe spanning, everybody's contributing mm-hmm. all the time. It's very hard to sort out uh, whose contributions are whose. And, and again, like, you know, even if you, even if you could, I don't think, uh, I don't think patents are generally empirically. And there's actually, and maybe we can, I can find some links to this, these studies too, but there's a growing body of, um, empirical literature about the actual practical effects of uh i of ip rights uh, and in in terms of you know competitiveness and in terms of um of actual levels of innovation so i think that's important to talk to quickly you know touch on too um Mm -hmm. because you know there there are criticisms of this all over the political map from within the libertarian movement and without a lot of people are starting to wonder if this if we're doing this right (laughs) yeah regardless of intentions right i mean economists should people like that like economic thinking should be very happy to hear that a lot of the ip discussion now is turning toward like okay yeah yeah yeah, it's intense to do this but what's really happening i think that's probably more of an important conversation as we've been having so yep yep and um, with that, you know, uh, unfortunately, our time has has pretty much wound down here. This is a topic that we can go on very fruitfully about for a long time. But for now, I do hope our listeners got a nice overview. And, you know, for some of you guys, uh, hopefully, maybe a first dive into this whole topic. There's a lot to cover. We have talked about a lot, David. Uh, let's try, if we can, to bring the conversation full circle and put a finer point on our exploration of the main theme today. So let me ask you, the formally, the official last question to give you the last word, ultimately, what do you hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to here on whether intellectual property should be part of a free society? In other words, if you wanted uh, someone listening to this to leave here after all this discussion with one or two or just a few takeaways, what would those ultimately be? That That's a great question. So I think first is, you know, as we talked about uh, quite a bit today, Think, you know, subject this analogy for our, for the listeners. So if you're, you know, a serious libertarian, subject that analogy 
of ideas to like physical property to serious scrutiny and see if it makes sense to you. Because um, I think one of the key sort of uh, one of the ways that the proponents of intellectual property prop it up is through this uh, naming it, just naming it property. And I, you know, Cory Doctorow has made this point too, I believe. Um, I, I can't think, can't think of exactly where right now, but uh, you know, just this calling it property is, um, you know, a manipulation, I think in this context, it's just not a good analogy. And the second I think is just um, similarly, you know, again, back to this point about what intellectual property is actually doing. Uh, look at the research on that. And if you're out there working in, um, you know, in law and economics or something like that. Uh, and I think, you you know, usually when we're talking about people who are work, work in law and economics, they're kind of talking about domestic uh, policy. Um, but there's a really, there, there are really big gaps in the literature right now, I think about what IP is actually doing to your point, Alex. Um, so I, you know, I'd encourage people to look into that too, because I think there's a lot, a lot of good work right now that is starting to show that this is not really helping competition. It is definitely helping, uh, companies in the global North consolidate their hold over, um, the rest of the world, but whether that's good from a libertarian standpoint is, you know, to me, I think, um, a pretty important question. So that those would be my big ones. I think that's a great place to leave it. So David D'Amato, thank you very much for joining me on the curious task today. It was great. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me and thank you for the, uh, the terrific questions. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. This episode was produced by Alex Aragona, Sabine Elchidiak, and Eric Segain. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona, and thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. The Curious Task.